Turn with me, please, this morning to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We've looked at three passages or two passages already. The third this morning from the book of Hebrews for our Advent sermons. Let's consider again today Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 and with God's word. Open before us, let me lead us in prayer for the needs of our congregation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for the way you take care of your people. And when we reflect on this year and the life of our congregation and the life of each person that's in this church, we can see a record of your faithful mercies, of sustaining grace to care for us and bring us through these times. Lord, we pray that would continue, that we would all lean on you for the grace that we need so that we could love you and one another and bring glory to you, keep your commandments and do the things that please you. I pray for the ongoing spiritual health and growth of our congregation here. We also pray for those who seek to bring the good news to our community and country and the farthest corners of the world. I pray for our missionaries and other missions workers. I thank you for them. Thank you so much that we can participate in helping them and be a part of their ministry. And I pray that you would bless the works that go on. I'm thankful we were able to add Rachel Bowserman to our mission support this year in Japan. I'm thankful for Brian Howard coming in and taking up the RUFI ministry there at Clemson. The brother that you have also sent us to take up the RUF ministry at Furman. You have been faithful to provide. We give you our thanks. Pray for all these missionaries and their works that you would bless them with spiritual fruit. Again, that lost people, that sinners, unbelievers would be saved. They would taste and see that the Lord is good. They would come to Christ for salvation. And that believers would be built up in the most holy faith. That churches would be established, officers raised up, and the sacraments observed, and you would bless people with the knowledge of Christ, how they could worship you. Lord, we do again pray for those involved, especially in our community, frontline workers that have worked extra hours this year, had extra burdens. We think of our medical workers, nurses, and doctors. We think of our teachers and our school administrators and principals, and, and thank you for all of them. Thank you for the ones particularly in this congregation. And how you've cared for them and provided for them and, and brought them through uh, times with extra difficulty and pray you would continue to do so. And Lord, we pray again for our family members, our friends that may be sick this time of year, learning of new uh, concerns. Lord, I pray that you would bring them through, especially over the next week. If, if there's isolation or loneliness, God, that you would give great grace, great mercy, preserve their life, but keep their souls uh, nourished on Christ. And may they find grace and comfort to help from the Lord God. Lord, as we come to your word now, we, we look to the word, we look to Jesus Christ to, to be our truth, to be our guidance. We, we know him by means of the word. So open our eyes to see truth, to rejoice in Christ, to celebrate Christmas, and to know your love and mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read Hebrews 2. Verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, 
he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. This is God's word. Not many authors write a book that influences a generation, far less write books that endure beyond their own time. But about a thousand years ago, a Christian by the name of Anselm, often called Saint Anselm of Canterbury, he wrote a book that continues to influence the church to this day. He influences what you believe about the atonement, even if you've never realized that. And the name of his book is Why God Became a Man. And his book focuses on the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, and Jesus' death, his atoning work, his sacrificial work. And quite simply, Anselm argues Jesus' death, his incarnation, they were necessary in order to satisfy the justice of God. And that's an idea that remains at the heart of the orthodox doctrine of the atonement to this day. It was believed before him, but he's kind of the guy that sat down, put all the pieces together, and just gave the classic answer that continues to this day. Now, I've never read that book, though I agree with his argument. But as I studied this passage this week, I can't help but wonder if this passage was at the center of his thinking as he penned his work. Look again at the opening verse, verse 14. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. Similarly, verse 17 states, For this reason, that is in order to save Abraham's descendants, he had to be made like them. Fully human in every way. In order to save us, Jesus had to become like us. And now that he has become like us, this passage celebrates all that he accomplished. So as we come to our last Advent sermon today, and before we gather around the Lord's table and observe communion, we we proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection there. Let's consider one last question. Why should we celebrate Christmas? Referring particularly to this celebration of Christmas here as Christians, focusing our attention on the birth of Jesus Christ. What have you and I done that that would require such an act of God? And how can something that was done 2,000 years ago impact our lives today? How can it help us when we're tempted, when we're tried, when we're guilty, when we're sinful? Why, Why did God become a man? And what did he accomplish? That's the question we'll answer. Why should we celebrate Christmas? And this passage gives us five reasons. Now, I've hinted at the first already. Let me say a little bit more about it here, because it really just captures the heart of what Christmas is about. 
and is the foundation for the rest of the answers. But the first reason is because Jesus became like us. Verse 14 again begins, since the children have flesh and blood. And that hooks in with what we looked at last week. Verse 13 cites Isaiah and says, here am I and the children God has given me. There in Isaiah, the children refer to the people of God, the people who trust God, not their own resources. They trust God for deliverance. And so they're identified as God's people, God's children. They they had rallied around the prophet back in the day. And Jesus puts Isaiah's lips on his own words and says, well, here I've come. I've come to gather the children whom God has chosen. And once again, that's us, humans, frail humans, mere flesh and blood. In order to save humans, Jesus, who is is himself God, added a human nature. And that's that's the theme of this whole passage here. The author repeats that thought in verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. And you see there again the hook back to last week's passage with the reference to angels. There we saw Christ became a little lower than the angels for a little while. Why? So that he could obey, suffer, and die in our place. And then God exalted him to the highest position, placed him over the angels, where he then brings these sons and daughters to glory. Now, verse 16 makes clear what should be clear at this point. Christ did not become an angel. He became a human. He went down even further so that he could rescue fellow humans. I mean, verse 17 even says he became Fully human in every way. Leaves no stone unturned there. Jesus assumed a complete human nature. He fully entered the human experience for us. And he did all of it without sinning. But he did it for us. And there are many good things to celebrate in general at Christmas. I hope you'll enjoy them. Don't let the stress, though, don't let the worry, don't let the disruption take away from the central event that as Christians at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus became like us. So the second reason then, and the rest of these reasons will flow out of that truth. The second reason is we should celebrate Christmas because Jesus breaks the power of death over us. Verse 14 states that. It says, after Jesus shared, it states he shared in our humanity. So now it begins to highlight, okay, what happened when he did that? We'll look at the second half of verse 14. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Refers here to this spiritual being, this fallen angel, the devil. And different titles occur in scripture. Devil is pretty synonymous with Satan. And it basically refers to this being as a slanderer. One who accuses God's people of their sin. Now why does it say that this accuser has the power of death? Is the devil in control? of your life and your death? No, far from it. The idea is this. He is the agent who brought about death. 
In Genesis 3, the devil, that's the serpent, the slanderer there, Satan, he convinced Adam and Eve to rebel against God. And that plunged the world into sin and death. If there had been no sin, there would be no death. But because of the work of Satan and the cooperation of our first parents, sin entered the world. But God in mercy acts to save us from the power of death, from this agent who brought about death. God acts to save us from him. How? By tasting death on our behalf. And by dying, Jesus breaks the power of the devil and the power of death itself. Some translations here, they use the word destroy with reference to the devil. Now, in English, at first, that may sound like the devil has gone out of existence. God has annihilated him. But the idea is he has reduced his power to nothing. He's still around. But his power has been broken. Because by death, Jesus reduced his power to nothing. He took away the stick the devil had. He took away what the devil had accomplished. You see, Satan seduces Adam and Eve. Adam rebels against God, and the devil thinks he's won. But what was a victory for him, supposedly, is turned into defeat when Christ, as a human, dies there on the cross. That's ironic, isn't it? Jesus became human. He lived perfectly. He's the one who actually deserved life. Yet he dies. And by him dying, he frees you. He frees us from death. His death leads to our life. It's ironic, but it's the beauty of the gospel. It's the good news that we rejoice in. It's good for you to realize You do have an enemy. Don't think little of Satan or laugh him off as something of a bygone era. You do have an enemy. But you have one who has conquered your enemy. And he invites you, leave the enemy's side. You can come back to the victor's side. And guess what? There's no shame there. There's no criticism there. You're not going to be treated as a fair weather fan there. You will be embraced with grace. You won't have to earn it. It's a free gift when you come to Jesus, the victor's side. So we should celebrate Christmas because Jesus broke the power of death. We should also celebrate it thirdly because Jesus frees us from the power of death. Or excuse me, I just said that. Jesus frees us from the fear of death. Look at the other part of this sentence, verse 15. It's another result of Christ's work. Not only broke the power of death, verse 15, he frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, while I was studying this week, this description here of death as something that was fearful, it really tripped me up. Why? Because it seems to clash, doesn't it, with the confidence that the Bible describes God's people experiencing when they face death. Don't we hear that said when saints reach the end of their life or at a Christian funeral that they face their death with assurance? They face their death with confidence. How? Why then does the, the scriptures speak of Jesus having to take away the fear of death? Well, I think it's for two reasons. One, when Christians speak of confidence in the face of death, first, they are talking as those who live on this side of the cross, and they are talking as those who have experienced salvation. 
Now, I don't mean by that that the Old Testament saints didn't have confidence when they faced their death, but I do mean that we speak that way because we've come to enjoy what this passage speaks of. We've experienced God's grace. We see the full picture of God's salvation. We rest in the finished work of Christ. So again, I don't want to make it out like the Old Testament saints didn't see that. They didn't enjoy that. But there is something fuller and accomplished about Christ's work on the cross that is something we enjoy. And of course, that is something that a non-Christian doesn't have. So the the Bible is speaking in this perspective of, of Jesus coming into a world that's lost and taking away something, a fear of death, that the world needs to experience. So if that is you, If you have that fear of death, you don't know the Lord, hear the hope that this text offers to you. When you come to trust in the Lord, you're trusting him alone for your salvation, not anything you do. You're surrendering to him as king. Guess what? You will know what lies on the other side of death. Because after all, that's probably the most fearful thing, isn't it? And sometimes we're okay, when will it happen? What will it feel like? But what's the, the most fearful thing? What's on the other side? Well, that's an unknown that Jesus has answered. If you trust in him for salvation, you know what's coming. There is life after death. Heaven with God. Seeing the very face of God. Not hell, not despair, but the final acceptance and grace and blessed face of God himself. So that's one reason that this text speaks of a Fear of death. Jesus has accomplished something that the world needs to experience. But there's another reason, I think, that this text speaks of a fear of death. And that's because even Christians, even those who've experienced God's grace, they have to recognize that death is something to be lamented. After all, Christians still die, don't they? They still leave behind a family. There's still sadness when they pass. And some people, they might try to act like, well, that, it shouldn't be that way. You should celebrate. Have a party whenever a Christian dies. Or you'll even find in society these days, it's becoming popular to hold a celebration of life instead of a funeral. Funerals are, are grim. Well, guess what? I don't agree with that act, that motion in our society. You know why I don't agree with that? Because 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six calls death the last enemy. You don't celebrate what an enemy does, and you don't ignore it either. You acknowledge it, and you lament it. But here's what Hebrews 2.15 is telling us. Christ has conquered that enemy. So death may inspire a certain fear. Obviously, none of us really want to face that, particularly when things are going well, but we will face it, and when you do, You will face it with a hope, not only that you will see Christ face to face, but one day even death itself will be swallowed up in victory. And that's why 1 Corinthians 26 not only says that death and the last enemy, it says it's the last enemy to be destroyed. So you lament death, but you lament with hope because God is going to destroy that final enemy once and for all. And the good news, of course, not only what we've already said, but that resurrection life, it begins right now. 
Every time God brings a dead sinner to life, every time God saves someone, that is resurrection life. That, that's the life to come invading life right now. And then one day, when Christ comes again, that life will fully manifest itself when he raises his people from the dead. That's when all the sad things will come untrue. And the Old Testament saints glimpse that. We see it clearly and we wait for it with hope. And that hope overcomes all our fear and sadness. That's something we should celebrate at Christmas. Fourth, we should celebrate because Jesus pays our penalty for sin. Now, verses 16 and 17, they just restate the main idea. So look at the end of verse 17. Again, why did Jesus become like us? Here the author says that another result of Jesus becoming human is in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, the author here, he, he, he likes to introduce topics that he later develops fully, kind of hooks the sections together. And so here the author just throws out there the idea of Christ's high priesthood and his finished work. I just want to give us the the main ideas behind those words. The passage calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, if we were Jewish Christians, if we had grown up as Jews in this time, we'd be very familiar with the ministry of the Old Testament Levitical priests. These were the people who offered sacrifices for sins. They interceded for the people. They they basically proclaimed by their actions, humans have sinned, God has acted to restore it, and we will show you what that looks like. Well, Hebrews proclaims now, in the last days, the great high priest has come. And like God himself, Jesus is merciful. Exodus 34 reads, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the view of God the Old Testament gives us. And that verse, by the way, is repeated all throughout the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes and he just shows us 100% what that looks like. He embodies the very mercy of God. But not only does he give us mercy, he's a faithful high priest. A faithful high priest in service to God. Now that phrase, in service to God, it may just simply be saying that Jesus was faithful when he served as a high priest. He discharged his office faithfully, and that would be true. But we could possibly read that phrase a little more broadly. Here's how one author translates it. He was faithful... In matters for which people are responsible to God. You hear how this is a little more broad? In all the ways in which we were supposed to obey God and did not, in all those ways, Jesus faithfully obeyed. And it culminated in him laying down his life. The priest became the sacrifice for our sins. In fact, that act of sacrifice, it's described in the last part of this verse and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, other translations use the word here, propitiation, instead of atonement. Now, I know that word is a mouthful, propitiation, but it's really the better translation. It's worth 
retaining. Because think about it, whether you say atonement or propitiation, you have to define what the word is, right? So propitiation is the most specific because it refers to offering a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. So it's not just sacrifice in general, atonement. Nor is it merely, okay, he, he removed our sins, expiation in some older translations. No, he offered the sacrifice that removes sin because it satisfies God's wrath. We all deserve wrath for our sin. Instead, we receive mercy. That's because Jesus gave his life for us. Do you realize how serious your sin is. Now, if you do, you can go a couple different ways. You can say, well, I'll try to fix it. No, don't try to fix it yourself. Or you can say, yeah, I'm just so bad. There's no hope for me. Nothing will ever change. No, don't do that either. Just trust in the Lord for forgiveness and mercy. He saves. He forgives. And when we trust in him, we don't have to be fearful. He is merciful. We don't get what we deserve. And we get what we do not deserve. And that's good news, by the way, for all of us. No longer how long you live as a Christian, no matter how much you learn to obey God, no matter how mature you become in your faith, which is the goal. We should all be moving towards that. But we never leave the foundation here, which is that we trust in the mercy of God because Jesus paid it all. So lastly, then let me bring us to the last reason, the fifth reason why we should celebrate Christmas. Because Jesus helps us When we face death. Verse 18 reads, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now this verse is expanding on the idea of Jesus being a merciful high priest. He is merciful to us, that's his very nature, but also because he actually walked in our shoes. He was tempted, that is, he was tried. He, did, he experienced trial in this life. We read of the solicitations of the devil to get him to sin. He persevered through all that perfectly, yet he did it in a way that was suffering. So that means when you're tempted and tried, Jesus can help you. Now, you might ask, hey, well, what does that help look like? And it sounds good, but what does that actually look like? Well, first, I think that the very simple knowledge that your sins are forgiven, will comfort you when you suffer. One author writes, For those who are tempted and facing various trials, the confidence of sins forgiven and God's anger turned aside by their merciful and faithful high priest would have been of profound help. I mean, think about it. When you go through a hard time, you may wonder, okay, is God still on my side? Or has he abandoned me because of my sin is all of this my doing and therefore God is now punishing me now don't make any mistake God corrects his children but if you are his child he loves you he has forgiven you and correction will be in a loving manner that is for your good he will not punish his children with wrath and I I think just knowing that just resting in that helps you view any kind of hard time and suffering through the right lens. But Christ also helps his people when they suffer by strengthening them when they suffer. Remember, this letter was written to people who were suffering for their faith. 
They were being tempted to abandon their profession of faith in order to alleviate their suffering. Quit confessing Christ and the heat will get turned down. Well, that's why the passage puts so much emphasis on Jesus' suffering. Through his humility, through his suffering, he led to glory. The world will tell you that's a foolish way. Your own internal temptations will tell you it's not worth it. Jesus has shown us that pathway is worth it. And when you walk it, you don't walk it alone. Jesus simply gives supernatural help, just strength, peace that you can't make within yourself. Jesus gives it to him, gives it to you when you walk that path. So when sin looks attractive, when suffering looks pointless, you you lean on him. He will give you satisfaction and strength. And lastly, that kind of help will culminate when we come to death itself. Remember, Christ's sufferings resulted in death. It was a real prospect for the Hebrew Christians. And as we said earlier, even believers still face death. So when that time comes for you or when you experience it with others, in those moments, Christ's help becomes very real. And this is well described by C.S. Lewis, who I often like to appeal to, in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's entitled The Last Battle. The children take their last trip to Narnia. Now, if you aren't familiar with the Chronicles, basically the children in these stories, they pass over between our world and Narnia. And when they go to Narnia, they serve Aslan the lion. They help him or serve him in some quest. But in the very last book, Aslan, and throughout the books, he always represents Christ in the stories. But in the last book, the last battle, he brings the children out of this world to his country. Not just Narnia this time, but the real eternal Narnia where they will never have to leave him again. So what that means for the reader to realize is the children have died, and they have obtained their final reward. And this is how Lewis describes it. Aslan tells them, There was a railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, the reader, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That hope, friends, is why we celebrate Christmas. So let's give thanks to our God together. And after we pray, the ladies will play this hymn before we observe the Lord's table. Let's give thanks together.